The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. On this vote, the yeas are 63, the nays are 36. The 60-vote threshold having been achieved, the bill is passed. Good morning, all. The Senate passes the debt ceiling bill, sending it to President Biden's desk and averting what would have been the first ever U.S. default. We've saved the country from the scourge of default, even though there were some on the other side who wanted default, wanted to lead us to default. We may be a little tired, but we did it. So we're very, very happy. Well, Asian equities uh, rally on the back of that with the Nikkei set for its eighth weekly gain while tech stocks drive the Hang Seng Index higher in Hong Kong and U.S. futures push into the green. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky ramps up the pressure on NATO over Kyiv's bid to join the alliance while U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak makes his support clear. Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. What we're also talking to Ukraine about right now is making sure that they have all the support they need for a successful counteroffensive. And crude prices gain but still track toward their worst week since early May ahead of this weekend's closely watched OPEC Plus meeting. Well, after all the noise and the drama, the markets ultimately got what they expected. The U.S. Senate has approved the debt ceiling deal, sending it to the president's desk to be signed into law. The Fiscal Responsibility Act was passed by 63 votes to 36 a day after clearing the House, preventing the first default in U.S. history. The final approval came after 11 failed amendment votes. Now, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the Democrats had helped prevent disaster. We're feeling very good tonight. We've saved the country from the scourge of default, even though there were some on the other side who wanted default, wanted to lead us to default. We may be a little tired, but we did it. So we're very, very happy. Default was the giant sword hanging over America's head. But because of the good work of President Biden, as well as Democrats in the House and Democrats in the Senate, we are not defaulting. Well, President Biden said he'd signed the bill into law as soon as possible and would address the nation this evening. The U.S. leader said the deal represents a big win for America and protects the core pillars of his investment agenda as well as health and social programs. Unfortunately, the president then went on to fall over at an event later in the day, but we understand he is well. But as far as the markets are concerned, uh, Juliana, an opportunity here for a little bit of a relief bounce. It seems that way, Jeff, and there had been some uh, debate as to whether we would see a sell the event type of reaction to a debt ceiling deal getting through. But in fact, we have seen a positive reaction. This is where U.S. futures stand right now. We've got all three of the majors pointing to a positive start when Wall Street opens later today. Dow Jones looking to add about 50 points. The tech-heavy Nasdaq, which outperformed yesterday, looking to add another 40 points or so. And the S&P also looking to open higher. It is a big day, of course, data-wise, with the non-farm payrolls report due out 
later this afternoon. In terms of active trade overnight, the Asian markets have caught a strong bid, getting a boost from that debt ceiling deal getting through. We've got the Shanghai Composite in mainland China up nearly eight-tenths of a percent. Serious outperformance in Hong Kong. The Hang Seng up nearly four percent, so incredibly strong bounce there. The Nikkei 225 also joining the rally up more than one percent. As for bond markets, we've obviously seen a lot of action in treasuries, especially at the short end of the curve in reaction to these debt ceiling uh, debate developments. And right now we are seeing yields higher across the board. The two-year note trading around 4.35%, the 10-year note trading around 3.61%. In terms of dollar crosses, yesterday we saw the dollar index pull back by about 0.7%. We got some interesting lines out of the Philly Fed president yesterday uh, pointing to the fact that he believes we are close to the point where we can hold rates in place. A slight change in tone when he had been previously talking about skipping, now talking about a pause. So a, uh, a nuanced difference, but a difference nevertheless, perhaps part of what drove the dollar index down yesterday. Now this morning we are seeing further losses uh, for the dollar versus sterling Oh, excuse me, pretty even, actually. We are looking at green across the board, but looking at the actual movements, not a huge amount of change. Sterling trading around 125.26, euro dollar trading around 107.62, and dollar trading slightly firmer versus the Japanese yen at around 138.95. Let's pick up on this. Um, Come on back to the desk uh, and let's have a bit of of a chat about this, because um, I am kind of skeptical that the markets actually felt that this was ever going to be a problem. I know that our friends in the fixed income universe have been pointing at the short end of the curve and said, well, you know, there was a little bit of repricing going on here. There were some concerns about the cost of insuring uh, owning U.S. treasuries, and that was starting to indicate that there was a little bit of um, proactive protection being put in place here. But let me, let me throw up this piece of evidence. So the, the AAII asset uh, allocation survey for May, it, it's a survey that's done among small retail, middling size investors. And what I thought was really interesting about the latest result is, if you have a look at it, there's a pullback in fixed income exposure. So what that told you was that um, a lot of um, retail investors were actually increasing their equity exposure. Now, they weren't jumping back in with both feet, but there was a 0.9 percentage point increase in allocation to equities, taking it up to, what, 65.2% here against the historical average of 61.5%. And that, to me, suggests that, okay, it's not a a crashing wave through a door, but it does begin to imply that there were a lot of people that were very comfortable that the debt ceiling deal would be negotiated and done. They weren't actually that concerned. And quite frankly, they're not buying some of the weaker data points that we're getting from the manufacturing sector in the States. Well, it is a really interesting statistic. I do wonder to what extent that's actually driven by the debt ceiling and taking a stance on whether the debt ceiling would be resolved versus the other pull factors that have drawn investors into equities, especially uh, retail investors. When you look at the names that have performed extremely well of late, it's the tech names and this massive rally we've seen in AI stocks. And those are long-term growth themes. So if you look at the incentives that 
would be affecting the debt ceiling negotiations, there's massive incentive to get this deal done. So if you just take the view that your comfortable lawmakers don't want to default, then you can focus on these other factors which may have played into this increased equity allocation. And still the data is very hard, I think, to, to understand at this point. I mean, the, the latest labour market data shows demand for workers still remains very strong, as far as we can see in the numbers here. And even though wages are not rocketing up to, to match some of the inflationary pressures, they remain firm and workers who are demanding more support seem to be getting more support at the moment here. I mean, I, I, I hate to say it, but you know, there will be some people in the Fed who think they may have actually managed that holiest of holy grails, <laughs> the soft landing at this stage but mm -hmm. interesting again we're talking about a couple of speakers this morning mm -hmm. who are saying it's a pause now please pause now we think it's time to reflect on how far we've come and let's see how long the lag really mm -hmm. is before we get full impact i think this um, nuanced difference between a skip and a pause has been fascinating we've mm -hmm. seen the fed officials really oscillate between the two and I've been wondering whether they are leaning into um, this notion of a skip um, to imply that they may hike later, not because they necessarily believe they will, but because they want to keep markets in check. Because ultimately, if we see equity markets latch onto the view that we could see the Fed pause, no more hikes, that could drive equities higher, drive markets higher, which could be inflationary and extremely counterproductive to what the Fed is trying to do. So it feels like they're really trying to lean into the meaning of the difference between skip and a pause. So the Jekyll and Hyde of this debt ceiling deal, and let's go back to this for a moment. I can never quite remember which one's the nice one. I think Hyde is the nice one. Jekyll <laughs> is what he turns into, yeah. right? But the debt ceiling story, whilst it appears now in the very short term to have caused some nerves about default on uh, US Treasuries, mm. it's worth bearing in mind that a lot of the support for the US economy in recent years has come from government spending. Mm. And this actually implies a significant check now on the ability of the Democrats to significantly expand spending here. And I'm just waiting to see whether there is a second shoe to drop as far as the market's understanding and cognance of that, because even as it may relieve some of the pressure on the fixed income universe and the Treasury market in particular, as far as companies that are engaged in gorging on public money, there will be a check here and there will be a bit more restraint, it seems to me, on government largesse. And obviously that will have implications. Yeah. I mean, a long-term um, thing to consider when I think at the moment markets feel very short-term um, with all the uncertainty around the Fed and what comes next this month, but definitely something to yeah. consider longer term. Liquidity. Liquidity. Yeah. At the end of the day, it is so key. We will come back to this. We've got a whole slew of analysts and guests for you this morning to weigh in on the topic. So do make a point of staying with us. Uh, the war in Ukraine was the main focus at the European political community meeting in Moldova attended by the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky. The UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak spoke with CNBC and told Sylvia that Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. Well, Sylvia, terrific. Well done for scoring that interview. Um, tell us a bit more about how Rishi Sunak sees the world. 
Well, first and foremost, I have to say that uh, the focus of that meeting undoubtedly was on Ukraine. And in a way, it also helped that we had a meeting, a foreign affairs meeting, uh, foreign affairs in, uh, in uh, uh, Norway, I should say. And there, of course, we heard from uh, Jens Stoltenberg. He made very concrete comments that indeed there should be a path for Ukraine to join the defense alliance. We also heard from the French president, Emmanuel Macron, making the comment that indeed by next month, when the NATO heads of state gather in Lithuania, that they should have also a path for Ukraine to join the defense alliance. So what we gathered here in Moldova was indeed this increased momentum for Ukraine to end up a member of the defense alliance. So naturally, when I had the chance to speak to the prime minister of the United Kingdom, the UK, of course, being one of the most significant members of NATO as well, I asked him whether he agreed with this timeline, whether he thinks it is feasible to have a path for Ukraine to join NATO by next month. Let's take a look. Well, I agree with the NATO Secretary General. Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. What we're also talking to Ukraine about right now is making sure that they have all the support they need for a successful counteroffensive. One of the things we've recently done in the UK is provide longer-range weapons to Ukraine. We were also the first country to provide main battle tanks. I'm proud of that record. And we want to make sure that we put in place security arrangements for Ukraine for the long term so that we send a very strong signal to Vladimir Putin that we are not going anywhere. We are here to stay and we will continue backing Ukraine, not just now, but for years into the future. And he needs to know that. And we will send that signal of support. So Rishi Sunak there, he didn't quite answer the question on the timeline, whether indeed we should expect that uh, big step really from NATO next month, providing a very clear path for membership for Ukraine. If you read between, line, between the lines, what Rishi Sunak uh, preferred to emphasize there was really the short-term support for Ukraine, more military aid. And I actually got a similar comment from both the Belgian Prime Minister, the Dutch Prime Minister. And so really, indeed, the focus for the time being is indeed on providing further support on the ground. And indeed, one of the big question marks really is when Ukraine will actually have those fighter jets to protect their skies. So, as you can hear there from uh, all the NATO um, comments that we gathered, indeed there is some sort of momentum to provide some sort of plan for Ukraine to join the Defense Alliance, but that's not in the short term. And yet, when uh, the President of Ukraine uh, arrived here in Moldova, he had a very clear appeal to all of the leaders gathering here, because uh, joining the EU, joining NATO might not happen in the short term, but that is an important boost of morale for the troops on the ground. Let's take a look as well at what the Ukrainian president had to say. Even Ukrainians who are proving our commitment to freedom, to freedom and the values of a united Europe with blood have not yet heard a clear positive answer about joining the EU and NATO. The hopes of the others are becoming completely elusive. Think about this this disappointment and the disappointment of both our soldiers who are fighting for freedom and those nations for whom our struggle in Ukraine is their, is their hope. 
the summer in Vilnius at the NATO summit, the clear invitation to membership for Ukraine is needed, and the security guarantees on the way to NATO membership are needed. In full, on our accession to the EU, clear positive decision is needed, and we are also preparing for peace summit, which will guide the world majority to implement the joint peace formula. And it is a global needed. The time has come and the doubts must vanish. Now, all eyes, therefore, are on that uh, big uh, heads of state meeting of NATO happening next month. Let's in indeed see, Juliana, what sort of progress Ukraine will manage to achieve from that gathering. But indeed, as you can tell, for the time being, it's all about that short-term um, help, both in, in terms of military aid, but also in terms of financial support. Sylvia, yesterday we talked about the unity among the European leaders um, at the summit. Now that we have uh, have had the, the leaders come together, how would you rate the messages of unity coming out of the summit? Well, the message was still very much similar in terms of, this, in the fact, uh, in the sense that they wanted to tell the president of Russia that uh, the continent is united. So we had essentially almost 50 heads of state gathering here in Moldova. But having said that, you can find a couple of differences of opinion when you look at the nitty gritty. One of the question marks here is whether Germany actually supports having that NATO path for accession for Ukraine. We didn't really hear from the Chancellor any sort of concrete comments when it comes to that. Yes, we got uh, that comment from uh, the French, and that is a significant step for them as well. But we didn't quite hear that uh, from the German side, for instance. So the overall message, Juliana, was indeed quite united that the continent is supportive of uh, what uh, of, the, of Ukraine, of Moldova as well, for that matter of fact. But then when you look at the small detail, indeed, there's quite a lot of differences that still need to be worked out. But let's see whether that big summit next month will actually manage to come up with some sort of positive, more positive tones towards Ukraine. But the big takeaway from this summit here in Moldova was definitely that Ukraine stole the show. The huge focus was inevitably on the Ukrainian president. He was the first to arrive here. And he was also the leader that had the, the highest number of bilateral conversations here in Moldova as well. So this was a very important summit for Zelensky himself. And he indeed, he was very clear in his message that he needs more when it comes to military support, but also in terms of joining the EU and joining NATO. And he pressured all of the other leaders to see some more momentum behind all of that. Terrific. Sylvia, thank you for that. We will come back to you a bit later on in programming. And for more from Sylvia's interview with the UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, check out cnbc.com, where you'll find that story and a host of other compelling reading. Uh, still to come then, OPEC Plus is meeting this weekend, but will the group extend its voluntary supply cuts? We'll talk a bit about that when we come back. And for more on the debt ceiling, and if we can expect a relief rally on Wall Street, check out the Squawk Box podcast.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back to Squawk Box. OPEC and its allies are unlikely to agree deeper supply cuts as they get ready to meet this weekend. This despite a decline in the oil price. Some market observers, however, point to a weaker picture in Asia as a supporting case for more cuts. Oil producers previously agreed voluntary cuts from May until the end of the year. Let's get a check on where we stand this morning. WTI and Brent are both trading higher by about half a percent at $70 a barrel and $74 a barrel, respectively. Let's get out to Dan Murphy, who is covering it all for us for more. Dan, just detail for us what we can expect from the meeting this weekend. Juliana, hi to you. Well, look, I think you have to look at the setup for oil prices coming into this pretty critical meeting in Vienna. What we've seen is oil falling for six of the last seven months. So the possibility of another production cut from OPEC Plus seems slim, but it cannot be priced out completely as we come into this weekend. And I think you only need to look at the warning shot that the Saudi energy minister fired last week in Qatar to the the shorts, suggesting that shorts could get squeezed if they better get him against him. That has basically led to suggestions that either he was jawboning the market here, seeking to push prices up, or perhaps even laying the groundwork for a cut. However, uh, also the flip side of that coin is that we have already seen OPEC making very sizable adjustments to production in April, and those cuts have only just started to take effect. So it is likely that according to most analysts at least, that OPEC could stay the course this weekend, attempting to ultimately see exactly how that April cut plays out into the market in the second half, against the backdrop of what has been, of course, concerns about Chinese demands given the weak recovery there, fears of a recession in the United States, and ongoing and robust Russian output right now as well. OPEC isn't necessarily at panic stations as well because we have seen prices still holding at above or around 70 US dollars. That is above the break-evens for most of those Gulf producers. So there's not a lot of sweat at the moment when it comes to what this means for their economies. So the pressure to act is look there, but absolutely not mission critical at the moment. So you do get the sense coming into this meeting that OPEC is likely to stay the course and just observe uh, to see exactly how the oil market dynamics unfold into the second half of the year. The other interesting thing to look out for at this meeting is, of course, going to be the response from the United States. We know that we are coming into a pretty critical election year next year, and as a result, inflation stateside is center stage. Uh, Higher oil prices would, of course, be negative on the election front, negative uh, for the US economy because it would be um, adding additional pressure on the inflation side. Of course, how the Federal Reserve responds to that will also be closely watched. And the other thing to look out for is the commentary that we could see coming from the Saudi side in particular towards the IEA. We know this war of words has been unfolding over the last few weeks about the outlook for oil and the trajectory of the uh, fossil fuel v climate narrative. 
So plenty of things to unpack as we come into this meeting, but the overall policy agenda is one of continuity. Uh, that's at least what we're hearing from analysts at this point. It's back over to you. Dan, when we got the surprise cut announcement from OPEC, um, a lot of uh, uh, followers interpreted it as a signal that Saudi was really siding with Russia. It was taken as a hit against the United States. How would you describe the alignment of Russia and Saudi Arabia at this stage? Well, they are very much aligned when it comes to the stability of the oil market. That's the core objective of these producers. And part of the reason that we have the OPEC plus alliance is to ensure market stability. So there's no questions there. Um, what we have seen, though, is somewhat of a divergence. We know the Russian side expects higher oil prices in order to continue to fund its war in Ukraine. At the same time, the Saudis also need higher prices to advance their Vision 2030 agenda. But of course, what they don't want to see is an all-out price war, as we saw unfold in 2020, when both of these producers cannot agree on the alignment of their policy agendas, and as a result, uh, open up the taps and flood the market with oil, which would cause uh, another collapse uh, in prices. So maintaining market stability is critical, and of course, the bias is to the upside here. But remember as well, these two producers are also competing to export crude into those core Asia markets. And if Russia isn't staying compliant with its own production cuts, it means that Saudi Arabia is losing out on market share, particularly if Russia is sending more oil into Asia, which, as I said, is a key market. So they do keep a very close watch on what the other is doing and whether or not we see concrete alignment coming out of this weekend meeting in Vienna uh, also remains to be seen. But the overall objective of market stability is absolutely what binds these two producers together, despite the intensifying competition we see with regards to their exports. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.